Good morning, gents. Shall we head on in and fill up from the front rows, rows, groups, groupings? Let's uh, set a good Anglican example. <laughs> fill these early groups. Yeah, that group is going begging right there. In you go, gents. Charge your cups. Well, fantastic to see you uh, all here this morning, uh, gents, especially if this is your first time to Burning Man. Um, Wonderful to have you with us at St. Michael's. My name is uh, Patrick Allerton. I'm involved in uh, helping steer the good ship Burning Man. Um, and in essence, Burning Man is about, well, it comes from uh, the Road to Emmaus uh, story in Luke's Gospel, where Jesus, the risen Jesus, appears uh, unknown, disguised from his disciples to two dejected disciples walking away from uh, Jerusalem and explains to them from the scriptures why the Christ had to suffer, die, and rise again. And uh, when he disappears from their sight later and they realize that it was Jesus, they reflect to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures to us? And that's our heart, that's our conviction here, that as we uh, gather together as men in the city of London and as we sit under the scriptures, under the, uh, the best teachers that we can find, um, that we will leave with our hearts burning within us. And really that's our heart, that's our vision. Uh, so uh, welcome. We hope that will be your experience today. And um, I can only say that, uh, well, we've given ourselves the best uh, chance possible. Uh, our speaker today is David Jackman, who um, is one of the most faithful friends of Burning Man. And, um, yeah, he's a dear friend to us here. And uh, David is author of a number of books and commentaries. Uh, he established uh, the Cornhill Bible School. There's a couple of students here at St. Mike's attending Cornhill uh, right now. I attended uh, some years ago as well. He was also uh, president of the Proclamation Trust, which is very committed to uh, uh, biblical preaching and establishing uh, that skill set in churches and um, other ways around London and beyond. He's just got back from a, a preaching tour uh, and training uh, tour of America, so we're thrilled to have him with us. Uh, so David, thank you so much for being with us once again. He's continuing our series looking at the tough sayings of Jesus, uh, looking at marriage. The title was Marriage, One Man, One Woman for Life. So um, David, uh, a warm welcome to you. Would you please, gents, give him a warm welcome as David comes to speak to us. Well, good morning. Thank you very much for your welcome. It's a great joy to be here. Uh, <clears throat> Burning Man on November the 5th must have some sort of connotations, I think. But I'm, uh, it's great to be reminded of the Luke 24 connotation, which is the much more important one. Now, we're going to um, look at one of these tough sayings of Jesus, as they've been called, uh, as it is in Ma uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. So I'd like to pray first, and then we'll... Uh, Turn up the Bibles and uh, read the passage together. But let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, in your mercy, have brought us safely to the beginning of this day, and we thank you for your providence and your care for us, which constantly goes before us. We remember how the psalmist says, Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. So you're before us, Lord, leading us. You're behind us, guarding and protecting us. And you are with us because by your Spirit, you live within us, and we praise you for your constant presence, for your unchanging faithfulness, and for your living word that speaks to our minds and hearts. So as we open the Bible now, please take us into your hands, teach us your truth, Lord. May your spirit be our guide and our enabler, 
And may we be strengthened and equipped to serve you well as we go out to live and work for your praise and glory today. We ask through Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, the passage is Matthew 19, verses 3 to 12. And uh, you'll see as we read the passage that there is um, an emphasis in it uh, on marriage, but also on divorce as well. In fact, that's the sort of presenting issue. So I want to try and be faithful to the passage and cover both of those things. And we'll do a few little um, diversions on the way into other parts of Scripture so that we can see something more of the overview of what the Bible has to teach on this really important subject. So let's pick it up at Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Well, it was a hot potato in Jesus' day while he was here on earth, and uh, it still is the whole issue of marriage and divorce. Because it is so central to our humanity and to our experience of life, it constitutes such a large part of many people's Uh, life history. And also because it deals with the most deep and intimate levels of our inner selves and therefore it matters hugely. Um, When marriages work well and are glorifying to God they are an enormous blessing not only to the couple but to their family and their immediate circles of friendship and sadly the opposite is true when there are difficulties and breakdowns and breakups then the, uh, the effect is felt very very widely. Uh, Heather and I have been married for 45 years, and we were asked uh, uh, last year to write a paper for the Jubilee Center Cambridge Papers on a gift of God, marriage, uh, which we gladly did. Uh, It always takes much longer to do these things with various edits and so on than you think. But the paper has just come out a month or so ago, and in doing some of the research for it, it was interesting to look at the uh, current situation regarding marriage in our culture. So we begin the paper by saying marriage is in crisis. It's not simply that many marriages end in divorce, although many do, some 42% of marriages in the UK, with almost half of those affecting children under the age of 16, which is startling figures, really. Increasingly, people are opting out of marriage altogether. Cohabitation in the UK doubled 
in the period 96 to 2012 and now uh, involves a total of 5.9 million people. And the other thing that we noted was amongst the under-25s, the emergence of a kind of bonded independence in relationships, uh, where the quality of the relationship trumps any obligation to longer-term commitment, where the question is, is it working for me? And if it isn't, then I'll ditch it. And I think that reflects the perceived value, especially in our culture today, of keeping all your options open, of not really being committed to anything very much, apart from your own satisfaction and fulfillment. And yet, despite this, the majority of young people still want to get married, and the significance they place on it is reflected not only in the cost of the average wedding, draw your breath, £21,000 in 2014, but in the delay that now tends to happen before marriage, with 80% of those who are married previously cohabiting. So the picture is very fluid, and marriage is not strong in the culture and in the way in which people look at life today. And our uh, brief, our purpose in the paper, was not to evaluate the redefinition of marriage that's happened with the same-sex marriage legislation, but to look at the present state of traditional marriage, if you like, marriage between one man and one woman for life, what is the state of that in the culture, especially here in the UK, and then to apply biblical teaching and perspectives to this, this very critical social issue. So we're in a situation where there's a lot of uh, uncertainty, a lot of um, edginess in our culture about it. And when you get a situation like that, of course, humor is one of the ways of trying to uh, ameliorate it. And um, I was rather amused to hear the story the other day of the couple who were celebrating their golden wedding. And, of course, on occasions like that, you always get asked the question, so what is the secret of the longevity of your marriage? To which uh, uh, the husband replied, well, there are two secrets. At the beginning of our marriage, we agreed that when there was some contention between us, my wife, because she always wants to do this, would be given the freedom to blow her top and get it off her chest and so on. And she would give me the freedom to cope with it by going for a long walk. And the second reason is that I have largely lived an outdoor life. <laughs> uh, and it is very funny, I think, but there is a sort of tinge of sadness in all these jokes, isn't there? That so often, um, you know, the problems overwhelm the blessings. So... Sometimes um, we need to laugh at these things, but the issues are important, they are intense, and as always, the important question is not what we think, but what God thinks about it all, and for that we turn to the scriptures that are open in front of us, and especially in this case to the words of the Lord Jesus himself. Now what he has to say may sound tough to us because it's so profoundly countercultural, not least because the gospel focus is not uh, on um, our rights and achieving our personal self-fulfillment, but on the joy and responsibility of giving ourselves in love every day of our lives to the people we meet, but especially, of course, in the most intimate of all relationships between husband and wife. And Paul reminded the Ephesians in that great passage on marriage in Ephesians 5 that as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so a Christian husband is to follow that pattern, to love our wives and to give ourselves up for them, uh, to thank God for this great gift that he has given to enrich our lives and to seek to use it well in dependence on him. 
So as I say, I want to look at the passage now a little bit under the microscope and then widen the lens to one or two other New Testament passages uh, to try and help us. It's an early hour of the morning to be dealing with a complex subject, but I hope you're up for it and uh, we'll try and steer our way through. Remembering G.K. Chesterton's famous words that he who simplifies simply lies. So we won't try to oversimplify it. We'll try to just see what the thrust is uh, in the passage. If you've got it open in front of you, you'll see that it divides into three sections. Each of them has an opening comment or question, and that is followed then by the Lord's response. So in verses 3 to 6, the question is about the grounds of divorce, and Jesus answers it. Uh, There's a second question at verse 7, and the section is to verse 9, 7 to 9. The follow-up question about the law of the Old Testament, referred to as Moses, and about what that has to say regarding divorce. And then verses 10 to 12 begin with a comment from the disciples about how hard Jesus' teaching is, and a somewhat enigmatic response from Jesus. He does sometimes specialize in those things, to make them, I think, think through and apply what they have heard. So notice, firstly, the motivation. Verse 3 says some Pharisees, they, of course, are the the people who really believe in the Old Testament scriptures and who want to keep the law of God to the ultimate degree. That's their position anyway, though we know from the Gospels that it hardened their hearts. They became legalistic and extremely critical of Jesus. So they're coming now to test him in verse 3. And uh, Jesus has left Galilee for the last time. He's on his way to Jerusalem to his betrayal and death. He's crossed the River Jordan, gone east into the area called Perea, and he's traveling to Jerusalem, and the pace is quickening now. The hostility against him, which we've seen brewing all the way through the gospel, is now focusing very strongly. And the Pharisees are looking for anything that they can use to nail him as a heretic and to get rid of him. So they come with this probing, speculative question, um, which is uh, really designed to pitch him straight into the current controversy that was going on in religious circles in Israel in the first century. And the question is about the right of divorce, or when is divorce appropriate? Now, we just need to know in background that there were two major schools of thought on this. One followed the Rabbi Hillel, who said that divorce was permitted for almost any reason, that the man was very much the controlling partner in the the marriage, and that if your wife displeased you in some way, then you were perfectly at liberty to divorce her. That could be done by a statement of divorce. And, of course, it created a very low view of marriage. Most men are inherently selfish, and they will therefore try and uh, make the marriage work for them. And you can imagine that in that sort of climate, um, the male dominance would be used very um, adversely against many a wife who was innocent of any real offense. And they're saying, Jesus, are you in the Hillel school? We know you break down a lot of the laws as far as we can see. Probably you'll break this one as well, will you? Sort of liberal view. The conservative view was Shammai, the rabbi Shammai, who permitted divorce only for some sexual offense, what would be described here as marital unfaithfulness. And immediately, Jesus now is pitched into this debate, which side are you going to take? Now, isn't it wonderful how he takes them beyond the debate back to the original scripture? 
I think that's a fantastic um, uh, pointer to us as to how to deal with these sorts of questions. And I love the way that he turns on them and says, well, haven't you read? <laughs> you know, it's all there in the Old Testament. You're supposed to be the experts. Haven't you read? Uh, haven't you read, he said, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? So here is Jesus now taking them back to what is in effect Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and he's saying we're going to find our answers there because we're going to explore what the creator himself intended. And fascinating, isn't it, that it says in verse 4, the creator made them, verse 5, and said. So Jesus is giving divine authority to Genesis chapter 2. Really important that in an age that wants to sweep all of the original, uh, the early chapters of Genesis out and say, well, of course, they're all just somebody, you know, thinking ahead and trying to get a view of, of what life is all about. They're a sort of primitive way of trying to describe the human condition. Jesus Christ actually says, God said this. He's the creator. And what is said in Genesis 2 and the quote is, uh, is there, this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is God's word to us. So the Pharisees, the Bible students, are now sent back to the Bible, and the ground to decide the issue is not their opinion or any other rabbis, but the word of God. Uh, and that will take us away from a focus on human accommodation to the teaching back to the original intention at the beginning, Jesus says. Let's then just unpack this for a moment as we think about marriage. What is he saying? One, that God created human life. Uh, he created it uh, because uh, he is um, a, a God who reveals himself. He is love in nature. He made human beings to relate to him in love. Love is always outgoing and relational. And within the human sphere, he created marriage as the expression, the deepest, most intimate expression of that love. But let's not forget the point that we only exist because of the will and power of God. He made them at the beginning. So human life is not independent of God. It's totally dependent on God. Secondly, God created human life in two categories, two genders, male and female, Genesis 1 tells us that they are equal before God and that both together are to serve God in his world, fulfilling his commandment to be his vice-regents in the world, to subdue the earth, to multiply, and to live as God's rulers of the earth. The gender distinction is built into creation, and the gender distinction is therefore a gift of God. And in a culture that is wanting, in some cases, to turn its back on that, we need to go back to the beginning. Thirdly, with the intention of the um, coming together of man and wife in union, he describes that as one flesh. Uh, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Uh, the flesh there obviously includes the physical, but it isn't exclusive of other things. So flesh here means one unit organized for life. Uh, the physical union within marriage is uh, an extremely important part of that, but it involves a union at every level. 
So marriage is a union of two people, not simply sexually, physically, but psychologically, emotionally, socially, and to some extent spiritually too, as we nurture and encourage each other in our faith. I think it's a wonderful verse because it reminds us that marriage is God's revealed plan for human life, for the propagation of human life and its continuance on our planet, but also for its flourishing. It is a good gift of God, uh, and any society that turns its back on that is going to find itself in chaos because the way in which God has wired up his world to work, and still every human being is made in the image of God, and still every human being will never find fulfillment till they find it in God. If a society turns its back on that, it is going to find itself uh, unable to operate in a social context with any sort of permanence, stability, or security. And so I'm interested also that it talks about family life here. You see, I mean, the verse implies that the man who is going to be married, who is going to take a wife for himself to become one flesh, is someone who will leave his father and mother. In other words, he's living with his father and mother. I mean, the verse presupposes family life as the norm. Again, you see, we can so easily move from that, drift from that, forget that. But in the beginning, marriage is the foundation block for family living, not just for the procreation of the children, but for their nurture and their flourishing and the security of the environment in which they grow up. It's a great gift of God. And in that sense, we as Christian people need to be unashamed of saying that and uh, graciously but clearly presenting the alternative to the many destructive ideas that are around us all the time. So this quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, predates the entrance of sin into the world with Adam's rebellion, which comes in Genesis chapter 3. In the beginning, marriage is the gift of God for these purposes. And lastly, before we move from this, notice that leaving and cleaving are at the heart of God's design for marriage. For this reason, a man will leave and the two will become one flesh because he'll be united to his wife. And as one of the commentators, I think it's Bruce Waltke, points out, uh, the verb, therefore, be united, is the strongest adhesive verb in the Old Testament. It means stick to. Think Velcro. When you tear two pieces of Velcro apart, the sound of it and the experience of it is dramatic. When you tear a married couple apart, the same sort of experience becomes uh, theirs. It is not something that should be undertaken lightly. This is why divorce is always so painful and why Jesus sees it as a tragic um, event when it happens. Therefore, what God has joined together, stuck together, adhered, let man not separate. So he's saying if God has set things up this way, lifelong union of one man with one woman in marriage as the foundation of family life, faithfulness within it and longevity as God's purpose till death us do part, then we must not try to make it otherwise. It's the primary human relationship it's long, it's lifelong, exclusive, and divorce in the beginning doesn't feature in the picture. But 
We are now the other side of the fall, and divorce is very much a feature in the picture. And so the second section raises the question about divorce. Why then, they asked, if you're saying that, there is, that they're stuck together, as it were, and there should be no divorce, because that's the implication of our Lord's words, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Okay, well, we need to go back to see what Moses did command. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, which is the passage in view. Deuteronomy chapter 24, you know, uh, the second law giving and those speeches that Moses made on the verge of the promised land. Great book, Deuteronomy, about God's principles and purposes. And in the course of the discussion of many issues, we come to the divorce issue at chapter 24 and verse 1. Let me just read the first four verses. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now that phrase, something indecent, is obviously the key thing. Verse 1, if a woman becomes displeasing to her husband because he finds something indecent, Literally in the Hebrew, because he finds a nakedness of a thing. It's a difficult phrase, as you can see, to translate. Um, Often the nakedness image is an idiom for sexual intercourse, and it may well be that adultery is in view here as the indecency, what uh, Jesus calls in our translation of Matthew 19, marital unfaithfulness. But it is complicated because of the use of the word displeasing here in verse 1. And then in verse 3, dislikes, or some translations have hate. So what we have here in Deuteronomy 24 is a piece of case law that a husband who has divorced his wife, she has remarried and then subsequently divorced or her second husband's died, he cannot reclaim her. Now, what it reveals for us, and we don't need to go into the case law in detail, but what it reveals for us is that divorce was permitted in Old Testament Israel, but that it had to be regulated. And it's interesting that it speaks about how the divorce works. There has to be a certificate of divorce. That is, there is a regulation that this is an action that has been taken. And it has to be public because she has to be sent away. So if Jesus' first answer seems to rule divorce out, the Pharisees say, why is Deuteronomy 24 in the Bible? Okay, with that in mind, then let's go back to 19 of Matthew and listen to Jesus' reply. Verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman, commits adultery. So here is Jesus responding to this question. Notice again, it was not this way from the beginning. So he goes back 
to the original intention divinely revealed in the scriptures. And now we're part of the post-fall world. Now we're outside of the Garden of Eden. Now the human heart is in rebellion against God and hardened against God's beneficial instruction. That's our world today. That's our hearts as their default position. We are hard-hearted people vis-a-vis God and his word. And that rebellious defiance has created a world in which something like divorce becomes very normal. But God continues to be gracious, and so the divine provision is given because literally, Jesus says, of the sclerosis of the heart, the hardening of the heart. Rather than a couple live in a permanent state of war, God provides a way out, a limitation of the escalating evil. But it is a tragic breakdown of the divine purpose. It's grievous to God so that for his people who are seeking to follow him, there is never a so-called good divorce. Remember Malachi 2.16, God says, I hate divorce, so guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. But if everything fails, then there is a provision that there should not be this continuing escalation of sin and evil. And the reason is because it is so alien to God's faithful, promise-keeping nature. That is why he hates divorce. See, he's created us in his image to reflect his glory. That's been marred in the fall, but it hasn't been exterminated. And what he wants to do is to restore that image through the grace of God in the gospel, through the new birth, through the life-changing ministry of the Holy Spirit within us, changing us from the inside out. He wants to reshape us into the image which we lost in Adam's rebellion and to which we've, uh, 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 ourselves, we've supported in so many actions of our lives. But what he is saying here is that that was never God's intention. But because we live in a world of hard-heartedness, it is a provision that is made. So what then is the answer to the grounds on which such a provision could be activated? Verse 9. And here we come to the famous verse, which is called the Matthew exception, because here Jesus is giving the only time in the New Testament where he gives uh, a reason for divorce. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, the ground there translated marital unfaithfulness is the Greek word pornea, which obviously gives us our word pornography. And it is something which has violated or destroyed the one flesh union. Um, Breaking up a marriage and remarrying for any other reason, Jesus says, would be adultery. But where the one flesh union has been broken by pornea, then it is possible that that should be ratified by divorce. And divorce is not adultery. But remarriage would be adultery if the marriage union had not already been broken by pornea. So it's clear in the Old Testament, and Jesus doesn't redefine or contradict it, that divorce carries with it the possibility of remarriage if pornea is the cause. So the faithful partner, we may use that terminology, has that option in Jesus' teaching. Now, of course, then the question is, well, what does pornea really mean? And it's a wide-ranging term in the New Testament. It's used in 1 Corinthians 5 about incest. 
It's used in Matthew 21 about prostitution. Uh, It includes the term adultery in 1 Corinthians 6, though there is a separate word for adultery, moikia, which uh, Jesus could have used if he'd wanted to, but he uses the wider category here. doesn't use the narrower word. It includes in the list of um, uh, sexual uh, practices, homosexual practice, for example, comes under pornea in 1 Corinthians 6. Basically, pornea means any and all sexual activity outside of God's law. And all this constitutes the um, destruction of the one flesh union. And Jesus says that is a ground for divorce, though it doesn't have to be. And thankfully, there are long but wonderful roads of restoration that some of us have seen friends and acquaintances of us take in restoring a marriage, even after um, adultery has broken the one flesh union. Certainly, Christian people will never want to rush to divorce, but in this case, the provision applies where, there, where pornea has occurred. And there is one other case in which um, divorce may be permissible, and I'd just like to take you to that, and then I must wind up because time's nearly gone. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 has a a famous passage about marriage and divorce, and I just want to take you to one or two things there. Uh, Page 1148, 1148, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Talking about now, he's in a situation where uh, he's dealing with Gentile Christians who've come from pagan backgrounds and brought with them Uh, family situations in which there are all sorts of instabilities and problems and maybe one partner has become a Christian and the other not yet. And so he writes in 1 Corinthians 7.12, to the rest I say this, I not the Lord. That is to say, not that this is less authoritative, doesn't reduce uh, the inspiration, but he's saying this is not something that Jesus himself said during his earthly ministry because he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in his earthly ministry, and this is a Gentile convert's problem. But Paul is inspired by God to say this, it's scripture, and so he says, to the rest I say this, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she mustn't divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. In other words, he's saying, into this family unit has come the gospel of Christ. Don't break that up. God is at work using that to bring people to holiness, to Uh, salvation and to uh, new life in Christ but now look at verse 15 if the unbeliever leaves let him do so a believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances God has called us to live in peace how do you know wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife so Where there is a disruption of the marriage because the unbeliever is leaving, um, the one flesh flesh union is de facto broken by that, and it's entirely appropriate, therefore, for that to be rationalized. Verse 16 is an encouragement to stay um, in the unequal union as long as possible, 
But God's concern, he says, is for peace, not escalating violence. And if the marriage covenant no longer binds the deserted believer, then it seems to me that divorce is the logical outcome of that. And in my own view, that remarriage must also be a possibility then. But um, that is something that Christians would have differing views about. Let's come back then, last of all, to Matthew 19, and then we'll pause for some questions before we pray. Let's look at the final exchange in verse 10. The disciples, this is page 986, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. It's a tough saying, Jesus. They come into the discussion now. If the possibilities for divorce are that narrow, then isn't marriage too dangerous, too risky a proposition? It sounds pretty unreasonable, Jesus. It's not going to be easy to keep this one. It's a tough saying indeed. And the reply in verse 11 is enigmatic. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. How do you know it's been given to you? By the fact that you accept it. That's what he's saying really, isn't it? Genesis 2.18 says that marriage is that good gift of God for our welfare and our flourishing. And when it is conducted under the guidance of God's word and in the power of God's spirit, it is a wonderful provision for our fulfillment at all levels of our humanity. But not everyone is going to be married. And those who are, until death parts them, will spend some part of their life, one of the couple, unmarried when their spouse dies. So marriage is not a permanent state. Some, he says, are eunuchs by birth or by castration. Some renounce marriage in order to apply themselves exclusively to the work of the kingdom. That's not a requirement. It's not priestly celibacy, but it is a gift from God, which he gives to some of his people, and they are able to use that in order to devote themselves totally to kingdom work. But not everybody has this gift, and back in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says it's better to marry than to burn with passion and desire. But if you're not in those categories, Jesus says, then it would be good to accept this teaching. It would be good to have this high view of marriage and to seek to um, work it out in practice in one's own life. Because it's been given to God's covenant people in both Old and New Testaments as a gift, and it's not likely to be rejected. But it's a gift to be handled and nurtured with care and attention, and a gift to be possessed through all sorts of challenges and difficulties, and a gift to be preserved, if possible, through all the changing scenes of life. So Jesus is saying divorce is always the last option for a believer or a believing couple, but sometimes, sadly, in a fallen world, it is the option. There is always more grace, and however long the problems have been festering, they are not beyond the grace of God in forgiveness and life-transforming power. And we must always believe that, pray for that, work for that, encourage our own friends in that, and our own marriages in that if they are running into difficulties and challenges. This is instruction intended for us as Christian men. And Jesus says, the one who can accept this should accept it. This is God's um, plan. And if we find it tough, well, so be it. But let's seek to order our lives by God's instruction.
we've reached quarter two, and I know we need to have ten minutes uh, for prayer. Absolutely right. So let's just spend five minutes, if you like, on any questions you would like to ask. I'll try to elucidate more clearly if it hasn't been clear, but the more important thing is to leave time to pray before we go. So any quick questions or not-so-quick questions that people would like to ask? Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I had a quick question. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10, 11, Paul seems to be saying that if you divorce, remain unmarried after that. Um, so it says, but if she does, sorry, so to the married of this command, a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce yes, his wife. thank life. you. Yeah. Would you like me just to comment on that briefly? Yeah, because in... Um, I think what he's saying is that separation may be <clears throat> a... a the, well, that separation may be the thing that will um, stop the escalation of evil, violence... Um, anger, you know, if the marriage is in real difficulties, um, uh, then I give this command that a wife must not, must not separate from her husband, but if she does. So what he's saying there is, you don't go to separation. You don't say, well, we've had our first row, so we're going to separate. You work together. You try to strengthen the marriage bond. But if it comes to the point at which separation must happen, because it's impossible for them to live together. She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That is to say, um, this is not an adequate ground for divorce. A husband must not divorce his wife. Maybe an adequate ground within the cultural framework and legislative framework of the culture, but in God's eyes, it's not an adequate ground for divorce. And therefore, the option of remarriage, which I think is built into permitted divorce in scripture is not available here it would in fact be adultery so thanks for raising that it's another reflection on on the issue yeah thank you very much thanks um i'm just reflecting on uh, the the temporal state of marriage i suppose jesus talks about it in those terms when he's asked about the widow of many husbands and things like that but we see in uh, genesis 2 uh, marriage as a model before the fall um so i'm just wondering what thoughts are on the eternal state of marriage. Yes, I, I think the Genesis 2 pattern, pattern is so important that we see that this is built into the purpose of God for human life from the very beginning. Now in the fall, of course, all of those purposes are likely to be skewed by sin. So, um, for example, the way in which we exercise rule over the planet on which we live as we all know, is skewed by greed and human sin exploitation and, and so on. So we live in a fallen world where we've still got the template of God's purpose in creation, but where we have to cope with that in our fallenness, which is why, one, we need the gospel, and why, two, it is such an encouragement to know that the work of the Spirit within us is to renew the image of God in us. Uh, and that image has not been exterminated but it has been marred and spoiled. Now, this is where we get the value of every human being. and This is what something we have to, uh, I think, share with our culture. It's a great 
uh, biblical insight that everyone is equally valuable in God's sight because God the creator made us in his image. Our culture will want to say everyone is equally valuable, but why? What is the reason for it? If you take away the creator and if you take away his uh, purposes for the human life that he's given, then you have no uh, objective um, standard by which you can judge what's happening. So I, I think... Yeah, we're living in a fallen world, we're coping with our fallenness, but the great truth is that in the gospel of Christ there is deliverance, forgiveness, new life, and that through the indwelling spirit, shaping us into the image of Jesus. You know that great verse at the end of 2 Corinthians 3, where as we look at the Lord, as we trust him and believe in him and focus on him, he is changing us. Uh, And this comes through the spirit who is in, in us, making us from one degree of glory to another, more and more like the Lord Jesus. That's his purpose for our lives. And so this becomes then one sphere of life in which that needs to apply. Thank you very much for your question. I think we should go to pray probably. Ten to eight. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to ask one more question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, maybe it's the elephant in the room slightly, but in our society, the definition of marriage having recently changed... Um, what should be our response, I suppose, both holding to a biblical view of marriage, but also pastorally in our churches responding to uh, gay marriage? Um, yeah. Well, I think we need to be clear about our convictions on, on that and to present them uh, graciously um, in a way that is reasoned so that we show why we believe this is not God's intention, um, and that we should do that um, in every situation where there is an opportunity. We need to ask for the grace and the courage to be able to say what we see in Scripture as God's purpose for human life and for sexual fulfillment and so on. So I think um, in, in the current situation... Um, If we Christians do not stand up for marriage uh, in this biblical sense, uh, we will find that more and more the culture drifts away from it. You may say, well, what can we do? We're only one little group of people. We haven't much of a voice in the culture. But we can actually live Christian marriages which become lighthouses in a sense. I mean, a Christian family where there's a strong marriage and where the kids are Uh, are brought up well and are enjoying life at home and finding fulfillment, that is a beacon light in a disintegrating culture. And the disintegration is going to go on. It's going to increase more and more. So I think rather than sort of marching the streets and crusading, we ought to devote our attention to our own marriages, seeking to reflect the glory of God. And wherever we're asked, it's like, um, you know, any evangelistic opportunity. Whenever you're asked a reason for the hope that's within you, give it, but give it humbly, give it graciously, but give it clearly. And I think that's the call to us in our contemporary context. Thank you, David. Um, Great. Gents, we've got about just under 10 minutes. Time to turn in our groups, uh, perhaps discuss a little about what we've heard, but then uh, most importantly, pray for each other and then we'll close at 8 o'clock if you want to be drawing those prayers to a close gents uh, just as we close um, 
David just wanted me to flag his paper on marriage, A Gift of God. Um, you can get hold of this through the Jubilee Center, David, that's right. If, if you want further details, I can give them to you. Uh, just drop me an email. If you're not on our Bernie Man email list, um, then come and grab me after this. Uh, and uh, we'd love to add you to it. And um, I can get the details off David and forward it on, on to you so you can get hold of this very helpful paper. We're back here in two weeks, continuing our theme, um, looking at, essentially looking at lust in two weeks' time. Uh, Jesus saying, if your right eye causes you to sin, better to gouge it out than to be thrown into hell. Uh, I don't know about you, I don't fancy gouging my eye out, so it speaks of Jesus thinking quite strongly about this area as well. Another tough saying of Jesus. Hope you're enjoying the series, guys. Um, So join us in two weeks' time, same uh, time, same place. Uh, There's a donations offering uh, box on your way out. We encourage five pounds if you can, uh, but no pressure if you can't. I I feel that today's issue is... um, so pertinent. Well, they're all pertinent, but um, so important. I'd love to close with a prayer, a general prayer, if, if we may. Just really protecting marriages, especially amongst the brethren. So, Father, we thank you for the tremendous gift that marriage is. That it's a gift in creation, before the fall, that you gave it to humanity. The building block for a healthy society. And Lord, we therefore want to pray, Lord, for every marriage in this room, amongst ourselves, every marriage represented here, that your hand of protection would be over it, that the blood of Jesus, the name of Jesus would be over that marriage, that you would be at the heart of that marriage, that you would strengthen that marriage. Thank you, Lord, that Every good, solid Christian marriage is a lighthouse in this culture, in this society. So we pray that you would be the foundation. And Lord, for those of us uh, in this burning man, brethren, not yet, with a wife, Lord, we pray that you would lead us, guide us into strong, healthy marriages in due course. Amen. Amen. Great to see you, gents. Do stick around. Uh, catch up. If not, we'll see you in two weeks' time. And do give me your email if I don't have it already.